The Christmas season is not just a season for us who love the Lord. It is truly a continual celebration of all that God is and all that God has done. We can't drive that home enough in all of our lives. For it's so easy when, the, when all the decorations come down and all the gifts have been opened and all the wrappings have been thrown away and you put them all in your garage waiting for the very next year that it's so easy to forget about the effect of the Christmas season. It is truly a celebration of all that life really is all about, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we've been looking at Christmas, the divine invitation to celebrate, and asking the question, what is it we are celebrating, which if asked and answered properly, will lead you to celebrate Christmas all year long. And today we come to our seventh point in our nine-point outline that spells out the word celebrate, in case you haven't gotten that yet. Hopefully you have come to that conclusion. We've come to our seventh point, and that is simply we are to celebrate the affirmation of unalterable prophecy. There is an affirmation that comes from Christmas, that there was a prophecy and there is prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. It's completely unalterable. Nothing you can do to change it. It's always in concrete. That's the way God's word is. And we told you last week that that Christmas and the coming of Christ has 333 prophecies surrounding his coming. 109 of them were fulfilled in the first coming, leaving 224 yet to be fulfilled. So if the first 109 were unalterable, then the next 224 will be unalterable as well. And so when you begin to understand that, the truth of Scripture becomes so incredibly awesome in our minds to see what God has done. Now, I've been preaching on the prophecies and promises of Christmas for the 27 years, now going on the 28th year, of our existence and we did, for, for 10 years, the Advent Jesse Tree devotional book, and I preached on all the 25 prophecies in here because I had to add to them. Why? Simply because if you just read the devotional, there's just not a lot in there to talk about. So what I did is I preached on all 25 of them so that you could take them home, listen to them, and have more information to digest and to discuss with your family as you look at the season of Christmas and what it means. So outside of that, I've continued to talk about the prophecies of Christmas. Because once you begin to understand them, everything about the story just blows up to this huge and awesome scene, which only helps you understand what's next on the prophetic agenda. So today, I want to look at one of those prophecies. I've looked at a myriad of them with you over the years. But I just want to look at one today. One that will open your eyes to something I think is very, very important for all of us. And you know, if you've been with us, that when you go to the book of beginnings, it begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, where Christ is seen as what? In Genesis 3, three fifteen, Christ is seen as what? The seed. the seed. Thank you, Kate. The seed that's promised, right? 
If you go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, you have what? Christ is seen as the? You weren't here last week, were you? Oh, my word. He is seen as a safe house. He is seen as a shelter because Christ, the ark was a type of Christ. And those who were in the ark were safe from the condemnation of the world. And so Christ is that safe house. He is that shelter. Then you go to Genesis chapter 22, and Christ is seen as anybody? Anybody? What? The substitute, right? The Savior is a substitute. Genesis 22, on Mount Moriah, Abraham is able to see where Christ would provide himself as a substitute. And then you come to Genesis 28, and Christ is seen as the staircase. There are a few of you that listen. He is seen as a staircase, the gateway to heaven. And Jacob, when he wakes from his dream, he says, now I know there's only one way to heaven, and it's through the Messiah himself, for he is, he says, I've seen the gate to heaven. I've seen the doorway to heaven. I've seen now the staircase to heaven. I know how to get to heaven now. See that? And then you move from Genesis 28 to Genesis chapter 49, because in Genesis 49, the book of beginnings, you have the Messiah as, anybody, anybody? Shiloh. Shiloh. Good job, Roger. He is the Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, the one to whom it belongs. You see that? You see how just there's a thread that runs throughout the scriptures. But also in Genesis chapter 49, there's something else. Where the Messiah is mentioned for the very first time in 14 more times in the Bible. So if you got your Bible, Genesis chapter 49. That's where we're going to be this morning. Genesis chapter 49. Look at one verse, right? Now listen carefully. I'm sure you've heard that, that John Madden, that famous coach for the Oakland Raiders, now the Las Vegas Raiders, but they were in time the Oakland Raiders, has died. He was a sports broadcaster. Uh, so m- most people know who John Madden is. So I listened to the, 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 the life of John Madden on ESPN this past week. He said something very, very interesting. He said he thought he knew football until he went to a seminar with Vince Lombardi. He sat in the, sem- in the seminar, and Vince Lombardi spoke for eight hours on one play. Eight hours on one play. Madden said, I thought I knew a lot about football because I could speak on one play for two or three minutes. But then I heard Vince Lombardi speak on one play for eight hours and realized I knew nothing at all about football. What if Vince Lombardi can speak for eight hours on one play, think how long I can preach on one verse. Because there's so much in Scripture that are contained in just one simple verse. We think we know the Bible until we start to study the Bible. And then we realize there's more and more to uncover that's there. This is the living and abiding word of God. You can't exhaust the scriptures. I'm never going to run out of material, okay? I've been preaching in this church for 28 years. I've been preaching for 40 years. I've never ran out of material. 
There's always more to study. There's always more to say. There's always more to understand. There's always more to know. And in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is blessing his sons. Israel is blessing his sons. And we look at Genesis 49, verse number 10, which talks about the blessing upon Judah. And that the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs, who is Shiloh, comes. Well, as you go on in the story, he, he begins to bless Joseph. And listen to what he says. Verse 24. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you. He gives five descriptions of the living God. And within that description, he talks about the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. And I'm not even sure that Jacob even understood that. In fact, I'm sure he didn't. But God was using the blessing upon Joseph to portray the future and to proclaim the Messiah who was going to come as shepherd and going to come as stone. The first coming, he would come as a shepherd. But a second coming, he would be the stone. That's very important. This is the first time the Messiah is mentioned in Scripture as a stone. What kind of stone is the Messiah. 14 different times in the Bible, Jesus the Messiah is referred to as the stone. And so, I want to help you understand how the prophecy of Christmas is unalterable. And that Christmas is an affirmation of that prophecy that cannot be changed and that's why the celebration is not seasonal, it's continual. That's why it never ends. It's always a part of our lives. We are always celebrating Christmas. If you go to my office, I have seven trees in my office. I never take them down. They're always there. They're always lit. Well, not when I'm not there. They're lit when I'm there, right? Why? It's a reminder, a constant reminder to me that Christmas never ends. If there's no first coming, there's no second coming. If there's no birth, there's no death. If there's no death, there's no life. This is a celebration that's continual. That's what makes it sensational. It never ends. And to understand the prophecy surrounding the coming of the Messiah as the stone, what kind of stone is he? Okay, hold on to your socks because this is so incredible. The first thing you, know, you know, need to know about the stone is that he was a smitten stone. A smitten or stricken stone. Turn to Exodus chapter 17. That's right after Genesis, just in case you didn't know. Genesis chapter 17. Moses is taking Two million disgruntled Jews to the wilderness. They had just been through the Red Sea. 
in a miracle parting of the sea. Pharaoh's army and Pharaoh himself had been cast into the sea. They are now dead. But Israel, they just can't stop grumbling and complaining. You come to Exodus 17, they're thirsty. They want something to drink. They, they want to blame Moses because he brought them out of bondage into the wilderness to die. They begin to complain. Poor Moses, what's he going to do? So it says, verse 3, people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now in the story, it's very important to realize that when you doubt the provision of God, you are actually doubting the presence of God among you. They doubted whether or not God was going to provide. And the test came, is not the Lord really among us? Because if he is, he's going to provide. So when you doubt God's provision in your life, you're really doubting the presence of God in your life. And so God says to Moses, strike the rock. From that rock will come water and Israel will live. They do. But what's the rock? Well, the Bible always interprets the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul this, references this story and says, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Christ is the stone. He is the stricken stone. Paul tells us the rock in Exodus 17 was the Christ. Now listen carefully. Now you know that when Exodus 20 comes around and people are complaining once again by not having enough water and Moses is upset, God says, okay, Moses, I want you to go now and I want you to speak to the rock. But Moses is so upset that what's he do? He strikes the rock again. Water comes out, but Moses can't do what? Into the promised land. Wait a minute. Just because he struck the rock and didn't speak to the rock, God says, no promised land for you? Yep. Why? 
because in striking the rock a second time, he completely muddled the picture of the cross. Because Christ is the rock who was stricken once for all for man. Can't strike him twice. That's why in Isaiah 53, he was, he was smitten, it says. In fact, it says these words. Let me read it to you correctly. It says, Isaiah 53, verse number four. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. When Joseph received the promise from his father Jacob about the stone, there was so much more to be said because he was not just any stone. He was the stricken stone. But there's more. For not only is the Messiah the stricken stone, he is also the stumbling stone. Psalm 118 Psalm 118, verse number 22. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Isaiah 8, verse number 14. My bad. Isaiah 8, verse number 14. We'll begin in verse number 13. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy. He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. He became the stumbling stone, not just the stricken stone, but the stumbling stone. So now the apostle Paul refers to this in Romans chapter nine and says this, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So the Messiah is called the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So now we know where Paul describes a stone as a stumbling stone. Why was Christ a stumbling stone? Because Israel was so irritated with the Messiah. He came and preached grace, faith. But they believed in works. Judaism is a works-based system. And Christ came and preached against that. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ and him crucified to the Jews a what? Stumbling block. Why? Jesus was the stumbling stone. So not only was he a stricken stone, he was a stumbling stone. He would be smitten on Calvary's cross. And that was an offense to Israel that their Messiah would, would be crucified and die. And yet, it was all about the coming of the Messiah that would allow us to see that the manger, in the manger, which is a stone manger, that the stone would be placed in a stone manger. Because it would be the stone that would be stricken. It would be the stone that everyone would stumble over because of the crucifixion because of Christ's finished work on Calvary's cross that would allow man entrance into glory. This Messiah, not just any stone, not just any rock. He was the stricken stone. He was the stumbling stone. Number three, he was the scorned stone. 
the scorned stone. Psalm 118, verse number 22. The stone which the builders scorned. The stone which the builders rejected. The stone which the builders shunned. He became the chief corner stone. So not only was he the stricken stone, not only was he the stumbling stone, but he, the Messiah, truly was the scorned, the shunned stone. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. It says, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah speaking of the prophecy of the Messiah, that he would be scorned, he'd be shunned. Now, you ready for this? Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, you have a prophecy about the Messiah. Matthew 2, verse number 23. Turn there yet? You got there? Get there quickly. Matthew 2, verse number 23. And Mary and Joseph came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. It wasn't spoken about through a prophet, but plural, through prophets. What did the prophets say about the Messiah? He shall be called a Nazarene. You can search from now to eternity, and you will not find that anywhere in the Old Testament. Say, well, wait a minute. If it's nowhere in the Old Testament... Why is it Matthew says it was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene? Good question, right? Notice he didn't explain that. Didn't have to. It's like when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He never explained that either. Why? Because everybody knew that the Messiah would be a lamb, and with the coming of the lamb, he'd take away the sin of the world. Everybody knew that. No one said, what's a lamb? What are you talking about, John? What are you smoking? No one asked that. And John never explained it. Why? Because everybody knew. Matthew doesn't explain this. Why? Because everybody knew that he should be called a Nazarene. You say, wait a minute, how do they know if it was never recorded in the Old Testament? Just because it wasn't recorded doesn't mean it wasn't said. How do we know that? Jude 14 and 15. Enoch the seventh from Adam, prophesied what? About the Messiah coming, his second coming, with all of his holy ones to deal out retribution to all the ungodly people upon the earth. But if you go back to the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 5, nowhere is it recorded that Enoch said that. So how does Jude know Enoch said it? Because God told him he did. How does Matthew know that the prophet said it? Because God told him they said it. And so if Matthew says the prophet said, 
the prophet said. Because God's word is inspired text. That's how you know that. Now, also know this, that the Messiah, the stone, would be stricken, scorned, stumbled over, and shunned. We read that in Isaiah 53, right? Notice Jesus is never called Jesus the Bethlehemite. Where was Jesus born? Again? Okay, just want to make sure you knew that. Okay? He was born in Bethlehem, but he's never called the Bethlehemite. Jesse, his father, called Jesse the Bethlehemite. But Jesus was never called the Bethlehemite. I'm not talking about Jesse, the son of uh, Father David, was called Jesse the Bethlehemite. David was from Bethlehem. He was called the Bethlehemite, but Jesus was never called a Bethlehemite. Why? Because it was prophesied he should be called a Nazarene. It was a term of derision, a term of disrespect. That's why the prophet Isaiah said, we never esteemed him. Why? We despised him. Because the Messiah would be despised. He'd be scorned. He would be shunned. That's why it says over in the book of Acts, the 24th chapter about the Apostle Paul, for we have found this man Paul a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout all the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Why? Because it was a term of derision. Remember on the cross, what does it say? Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. And the religious leaders went to Pilate and said, you got to change that. Say, he says he's the king of the Jews. Pilate says, I've written what I've written. And what he wrote was absolutely true. The Bible says very clearly the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse number 2. He did. The Bible says in Hosea 11, verse number 1, that Messiah would come from Egypt. Did he? Yes. Because he fled from Bethlehem to Egypt because the angel told them to. Because Herod was killing all the children two years and younger. So when Hosea 11 says the Messiah will come from Egypt, guess what? He did come from Egypt because he came from Egypt and he came to Nazareth. Isaiah 11.1 says that he shall come from Nazareth. Why? Because he is the branch or the shoot. It's a Hebrew word meaning netzir, which if you understand the word Nazareth, its root is this. They are the village of the shoot or the village of the branch. So when it says Jesus of Nazareth, it says Jesus the branch, Jesus the netzir. In other words, that's a term for the Messiah. And the Messiah is the king of the Jews. So the religious leaders say, wait a minute, you can't say that because that would mean we are affirming that Jesus is the branch. The branch is the Messiah. And the Messiah who is the king of the Jews, that would mean we're hanging the king of the Jews on the cross. You can't say that. Pilate says, I've written what I've written. See that? Talk about unalterable prophecy. 
Talk about Christmas being the affirmation of prophecy that's completely unalterable. Everything with precision, everything with perfection, all took place on that night in Bethlehem to fulfill all that the prophets had said. This is rich in meaning, so true for us to understand. And I am so late, but I gotta finish this. If you wanna bring the kids in, you can bring them in. It's okay, I gotta finish this, okay? So not only is he, as the scriptures say, the stricken stone or the stumbling stone or the scorn stone, notice this, he is also called the significant stone. Isaiah 28, verse number 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am weighing in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed or not be disappointed. This stone is a, is a significant stone because, number one, it is a satisfying stone because he who comes to it never runs away from it, never is in a hurry to run away, is never disturbed once they arrive. He is a satisfying stone. He is a significant stone. That's why Peter quotes this in 1 Peter 2, verse number 6, who says, when you believe in the Messiah, you're never disappointed. You can't be. Because he is the significant stone, and he is so significant because he is a satisfying stone. But not only is he a satisfying stone, he is a saving stone. Not just any stone, he's a saving stone because Peter would refer to this in the book of Acts in the fourth chapter when he would say these words, uh, Acts chapter four, Acts chapter four, verse number 11 and 12, which says, by this name, this man, this lame man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone. Listen to this. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other stone that saves. There is no other stone that satisfies. This man was healed because of the stone that satisfies. Because of the stone that says, there is, that saves. There is no other name in heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. What name is that? It's the name of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the chief cornerstone. He is the scorn stone, the stricken stone, the stumbling stone, the significant stone, the saving stone, the satisfying stone. And I'm not even done yet. There's just so much to uncover in the scripture about who Christ is that a prophecy is unalterable because Christmas affirms everything that was said about the Messiah. We need to grasp this. Listen, once you get this, your Christmas celebration is continual. Your tree will be up 24 7. Unless you got a live tree, then you got to take it down because the needles will be everywhere, right? But your Christmas decorations will never come down because you're always in celebration mode. It's all about the, the coming of the Messiah. I know you think I'm crazy. I'm really not. I'm really in my right mind, okay? I'm not on any, on any pain meds or anything up here. I'm doing good, okay? Didn't have to preach the first service because we canceled that one. Boy, I'm, I'm, re- I'm loaded for bear now. I can go till 2 o'clock this afternoon. Yeah, except for you, unless you got small kids. So if you read on in the scriptures, you're going to realize this. Oh, Wow. I'm running out of time, but you got to get this. He's 
He's the smashing stone. Smashing stone. I said, where do you get that at? Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now, if you weren't with us on Wednesday nights, you missed this. If you weren't with us on Wednesday nights, make sure you're with us in the following Wednesday nights. Because remember, Daniel has this prophecy, right? And, uh, this prophecy that, that he interprets because Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about this image, right? Head of gold, uh, breastplate of silver, right? Okay, thighs of, of, of bronze and, and, and legs of iron, right? And, 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 and the feet of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar is all confused about what, what the dream is. So God tells Daniel what the dream is. And so... It says in, in Daniel 2, verse number 32, the head of that st- statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Wow. And what he does is he describes the history of the world and the world empires that will rule. The head, of course, is Babylon. That's where Nebuchadnezzar ruled. And then the breastplate of silver was what? The Medes and the Persians. We haven't gotten to that part yet, but we will in the book of Daniel. And Daniel lived in both eras, okay? He lived in both of them. So he's able to see him come through. Because when I'm a prophet and I prophesy, what happens? I prophesy about the future, but there's always something in the near future that comes to be to prove that what I said about the far future actually is going to happen, right? And so it did happen as, as, as Daniel had said, and he lived in it. But then after the Medes and the Persians came the third world power, which is Greece. That was the bronze thighs. And then it comes the legs of iron, which was the fourth world empire, which was Rome. But there's been no world empire since, and there won't be until the ten toes of the ten-nation confederacy. And Daniel tells us, along with the book of Revelation, Daniel 7, along with the book of Revelation, that those 10 toes are 10 nations, are 10 kings. So it's not going to be China who's going to rule the world. It's not going to be Russia that's going to rule the world. It's not going to be America that rules the world. It's a combination of 10 rulers, 10 kings, because that's what Daniel said in Daniel 2, because God gave him the vision. It's all right there. So we know this. Now listen. You continue looking until a stone cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Who's the stone? Well, the stone's the Messiah at his second coming when he comes and crushes the ten-nation confederacy, when he crushes the army of the Antichrist. He is a stone. That stone fills the entire earth. This is a smashing stone. But listen, not only is it a smashing stone, it's a superior stone. And not only is it a superior stone, it is a sufficient stone because it's superior because it rules the entire world and it destroys every other kingdom that ever existed, making it superior to even Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. 
And it's sufficient because it fills the entire earth. And when the Messiah comes, he fills the entire earth with not just his person, but all that he brings and the promises to Israel. See that? That's the stone. <laughs> There's just so much there, but I'm not even done yet. Why? Because if you go back, and if I had more time, I, I, would, I would just keep talking, but if you go back to Isaiah 28, it says this, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, a, a tested stone. Okay, that can be taken two ways. As a suffering stone, which he was, or a sentencing stone, which he is. He is a tested stone. In other words, the stone that tries, the stone that tests. Now, if you've got your Bible, Book of Revelation, I promise we will end here. Book of Revelation, second chapter, 17th verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You see, in Isaiah 28, we know that he is a sentencing stone. Listen, in ancient days, when you went to trial and they rendered a verdict, they came out with two stones, a black stone and a white stone. And the stone was held in the hand of the judge. If he opened his hand that was a black stone, you're guilty. If he opened his hand that was a white stone, you were acquitted. So what is the white stone? The white stone is the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because he knew no sin became sin for us that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. He gives us a white stone. Why? We're acquitted. We're set free. We're free. And all throughout the book of Revelation, the church is clothed in white garments, white linen. We come on white horses. The throne of God is a white throne. It's symbolic of all of his righteousness. And we are given a white stone. And on that stone is a new name, a new name that no one knows. You say, what's the name? I don't know. No one knows. But it's a new name, a name of new identity, new quality. There's something new that you receive. Why? Because the stone is a sentencing stone. And he passes judgment. And that judgment for the overcomer, the one who believes in the Messiah, is that you're free. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more hardship. You're set free. And on that white stone is a new name. You know what I think? I think that in the Lamb's book of life, when your name is told, said to be written down in the Lamb's book of life, I don't think Lance is written there. I think my new name's written there. I think your na new name is written there because that's the name I will be referred to throughout all eternity. I don't even know what that name is. It's okay. It's okay. 
One day I will know. One day you'll know. But all because of a stone. A stone that was a stricken stone. That was a significant stone. A scorned stone. A saving stone. A satisfying stone. Oh, by the way, it's a supernatural stone. How do we know that? Because the stone was cut out of a mountain, not made with hands. That means it was supernaturally put together. Speaking of the virgin birth. And the stone would come. And, and why, listen, why does God use that analogy with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2? Because Nebuchadnezzar believed in Bel Marduk. Bel Marduk was symbolized by a great mountain. And they worshiped the great mountain of their God. But there's coming a greater stone that destroys the mountain. It's a stone that's cut out without hands. That's supernaturally, it's a supernatural stone that destroys everything that has been set up by the world system. That's the stone that we worship. That's the stone that was laid in a manger cut out of a stone. I tell you, I could go on and on about this. This is just absolutely fascinating to me. That's our Messiah. That's why we celebrate. We celebrate the affirmation of unalterable prophecy. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today, all that you do, the truth of your word. It is so powerful. May we hear it, believe it, and follow it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.